Yes, thank you, Ruth. Now, since this paper is going to make an attempt to unpick the multiple layers, I mean, those many, if not exactly the 50 shades of Disraeli celebrity, so please excuse the bad joke here, uh, it definitely occurred to me after reading Daisy's book and after listening to her paper just now that the Disraeli's marriage and the unusualness of this union of two seemingly ill-matched outsiders in the social circles in which they moved and the fairy tale character that was constructed by contemporaries out of this... Um, mutual devotion that they, uh, needless to say, also share, must be added to those many factors that informed Disraeli's celebrity status and appeal. Uh, but before I'm going to focus on some of these factors in more detail, let me just start off with a quotation that provides us with some astonishing insight into the extent of Disraeli's celebrification by the mid-19th century. Now, it is a quotation taken from the Edinburgh Review, which in 1853, following Disraeli's first 10-month spell in office as Chancellor of the Exchequer, dedicated a 40-page character sketch to this most recent political high flyer, which is quite revealing in many ways, but looking upon the Disraeli phenomenon with a mixture of clearly politically motivated incredulity and distaste. The, the piece opens with this paragraph, and I think it is well worth quoting in full because it also provides us with some astonishing glimpse into the workings of Victorian celebrity culture itself. So it says here, if a prize were offered at Oxford or Cambridge for a dissertation on the question, what individual from February 1852 to January 1853 has most occupied the pens, tongues and ears of Englishmen, the answer would be given by acclamation. The Right Honourable Benjamin Disraeli, late Chancellor of the Exchequer, is indisputably the man. He at once became an inexhaustible topic of animated discussion in society. His portrait was painted by one fashionable artist. His bust was taken by another. What were called likenesses of him appeared in illustrated newspapers by the dozen, and, above all, he was placed in Madame Tussaud's repository, that British Valhalla in which it is difficult for a civilian to gain a niche without being hanged. Now the piece then basically goes on to debunk Disraeli's rise to power as thoroughly unmerited since apparently it seemed to be based on his flashy showmanship, his vanity and his opportunism and yet this description attests to Disraeli's newly attained status as a national celebrity for what are you but a national celebrity if your likeness gets put on display in Madame Tussauds. Um, it also, of course, uh, uh, does allude to the major criteria and conditions that define the term and the concept of celebrity. Now, according to the foundational work undertaken by Tom Mole on celebrity within the historical concept, and also, in particular, uh, the multimedial phenomenon of celebrity in the Romantic period, um, celebrity must essentially be understood as a cultural apparatus that comes into being through the negotiations between basically three factors, including an individual, an audience, and an industry. And it is when these three factors routinely work work together in order to render an individual personally fascinating that, according to Moe, modern celebrity culture in the sense that we can relate to it comes into being. So this passage then very much gives us an insight into this cultural apparatus and its workings. I mean, it reveals the intense 
mediatization, circulation and commodification of the Israelis' public image by that particular point through the improved technologies of image reproduction, uh, print culture, commodity culture, of course also the material objects of commemoration resulting in the widespread visibility and consequently recognizability of the Israelis' public image. So needless to say, the Israelis' rise to high political office increased his public profile and it also endowed him with a considerable amount of what celebrity theorists, in analogy to Pierre Bourdieu's concept of cultural capital, have actually described as celebrity capital. Something that, for example, is described and defined by the media sociologist Olivier Driessens as recognizability or as accumulated media visibility that results from recurrent media representations. Now, I would argue that the perspective of celebrity studies, which of course in recent years has become a bit of a growth area in the humanities, um, does, especially when celebrity studies is sensitive to the shifting meanings, functions and uses of the term of celebrity in different historical periods, allows us to disentangle some of the dynamics at work in the formation of the Israelis' public profile, uh, while at the same time, of course, it also throws an interesting light on the interplay of celebrity authorship, uh, the literary marketplace and politics in the Victorian era. It goes some way in explaining the Israelis' impact on public consciousness and also his afterlives in cultural memory. And uh, it also helps us to approach the question of what exactly it was that rendered Israeli one of the most conspicuous and one of the most visible Victorian public figures. I mean, I would argue, for example, that this position very crucially rests on uh, the Israelis' fluent and dexterous migration between uh, different social fields and different media, um, something that sociologists also have identified as a phenomenon that is one of the prime features of celebrity and that I think can also be very neatly applied to 19th century contexts. Now, it has been very well established by Disraeli scholars and uh, notably among them, of course, Michael Flavin in his book, uh, Todd Endelman, Paul Smith, most recently Robert O'Kell, to name just a few here, that for Disraeli, literature and politics throughout his life, and I would maintain that this also counts for the periods in which he was not outwardly engaged in literary production, represented closely interconnected spheres of self-fashioning and self-projection, a media of self-invention that allowed Disraeli also I mean, to develop, to articulate and to negotiate, perhaps even experiment with I mean, a whole range of aspects related to his identity and his personality. I mean, here we just got a little panorama of Disraeli's many parallel lives. Um, it is also I mean, a line of argument that has a long history, a history that stretches back to Disraeli's own day when commentators like, for example, Leslie Stephen in his 1874 discussion of Mr. Disraeli's novels, as it is entitled in the fortnightly review, um, in which, by the way, he lamented, as he says, the degradation of a promising novelist into a prime minister, in which he 
encouraged readers of Disraeli's novels, and interestingly enough he speaks here particularly of Tancred, to adopt a theory of a double consciousness which required their resolve and their readiness to pray with the mystic and sneer with the politician as the fit takes us. Now also upon the publication of Lothair, um, the Saturday Review very much tried to diffuse criticism that was aimed at what seemed like an inappropriate mixing of incompatible spheres by encouraging uh, its readers and actually reminding its readers that Disraeli's novels have been those of a politician. His politics have been those of a romancer. So contemporary commentators very regularly took note of um, this uh, rather strange and interesting mixing, this unusual alliance of creative artist and pragmatic politician in Disraeli's career, a blurring of boundaries which they found highly puzzling to say the least, but which some of them also recognised as the key to his success. Now, a long piece on the premier novelist, as it was entitled, in London Society, published in May 1868, which was particularly enthusiastic about the fact that a member of the writing profession had made it to this top position in British public life, um, attributed, for example, his spectacular rise to the fact that he unites qualities which are not only diverse, but which at first sight appear contradictory and irreconcilable. Flighty, fanciful, loving to soar on the wings of a vague and extravagant imagination, he is at the same time unconquerable by toil, inflexible in resolution, indomitable in perseverance. To the chariot of his mind are yoked Pegasus and the cart horse, and so skilful has been his driving that, though he has always let Pegasus have his fling, he has never been thrown out of his track and has reached the loftiest goal towards which a British subject can strive. Now again, I think this passage provides us with a glimpse into Victorian celebrity culture. Victorian celebrity culture that with its obsession with penetrating the private sphere of the well-known individual was not so different from today's and its fascination with the untouchable, with the essentially unknowable, its craving for like unearthing the authentic self of the famous individual who otherwise remained shrouded in mystery. So this curious mingling of the Israelis' many parallel lives and mercurial public personae uh, very much challenged existing norms of categorization. Um, and it contributed to the elusiveness and the mercurial quality of the Israeli's public image, which fed processes of myth-making and eventually, of course, processes of celebrification. Now, in the Israeli's case, I would like to expand this notion of migration and link it up with this idea of transgression. It has already come up, and I think it's going to be further explored in uh, Dominic's paper later on. I mean, this transcending of boundaries, of norms, and categories, um, which on the one hand, I mean, you know, it marked both his uh, admittedly troubled Byronic allegiance, yeah, I mean, this indebtedness 
to second-generation romanticism, the way in which he tried to place himself, I mean, within this tradition of the 18th century boundary-breaking genius. Uh, but on the other hand, it also very much contributed to the fairy tale character and consequently the celebrifying ramifications of his otherness. Now, the intersections and the mutually sustaining impact of a whole range of uh, uh, field and context-specific manifestations of fame that shaped Israeli's public profile become particularly obvious when we take a closer look at the reception of his two novels published in the wake of his rise to highest government office. And responses to these two novels, and in the following I'm going to focus on Lothair, I mean, both by critics and ordinary members of the public certainly need to be read in the light of the Israeli celebrity status and appeal, but also within the larger context of Victorian literary and political celebrity culture. I mean, moreover, they reveal the convertibility of the Israeli's celebrity capital into economic, into social, to some extent also symbolic capital. But they also reveal the Israeli's own awareness of the growing pervasiveness um, of celebrity culture in the course of the 19th century. It certainly was this burgeoning and flourishing celebrity culture that, for example, gave rise to what Disraeli's publisher Thomas Longman called a virulent Lothair mania, something that can probably be found encapsulated in this rather inconspicuous-looking scrap of paper that is to be found in the Israeli's private archive, the Hunan papers deposited at the Bodleian Library. But it's also at the same time uh, a manifestation of authorial self-assertion and pride. I mean, it lists in the Israeli's own handwriting all the items that, to his knowledge, have been named after the hero and the heroine of his then newly published novel, Lothair. Uh, including, and I'm just going to pick out the more intriguing ones here, Mr. Stevens's Court, then you have a Lothair Galop, a Lothair Perfume, a Lothair Street, and if we move over to the Coruscant column, we even got Baron Rothschild's filly here. Um, so the novel's enormous impact on Victorian popular culture and also its enormous commercial success reveals the impression that the book made on Victorian public consciousness and popular imagination. I mean, it certainly spoke to contemporary readers' obsessions and uh, interests, anxieties perhaps even, I mean, about uh, political instability, revolutionary upheaval, um, the scheming designs of secret societies, uh, even, of course, the influence, the growing influence of Roman Catholicism, and some of the so-called fan letters that Israeli received in the wake of the publication of the book would very much suggest that the book was read as a piece of anti-Catholic propaganda, which clearly it wasn't, but even Blackwood, in its absolutely ferocious review of the novel, noted the appalling effect that it had on contemporary readers by stating, and this is a quote from this piece here, indeed we know of one old lady who has been terribly frightened and who never goes to bed now without dreaming that she's blown up by conspirators or forcibly converted by the Pope. Well, there you go. So the fact that Lothair engaged with contemporary socio-political concerns was certainly part of its 
enormous commercial success, but it was not what turned it into a public sensation that apparently on the day of its publication saw Mr. Moody's house in a state of siege, as Longman very proudly reported in one of his communications with Disraeli. Um, so what did cause a public sensation then was the fact that a former Conservative Prime Minister and party leader had yet again taken up the genre of fiction, something that was considered an extraordinary literary coup and that was classed in one of the papers quite in rivalry of the author's own hyperbolic excesses as the eighth wonder of the world. So he certainly baffled political friend and foe alike as the activity of novel writing with its famed whiff of flippancy and frivolousness seemed to sit quite uneasily with the gravitas and the distinction of high political office. And it's also undercut Disraeli's seriousness and trustworthiness as a respectable statesman and reliable party leader. Interestingly enough, it also triggered a discussion about a hierarchy of different types of fame with the clear implication that a higher fame, and this is a direct quotation from one of the papers, a nobler, a more respectable version of fame would be attained if the author dedicated himself to the more pressing political issues of the day, uh, and if he left literary production to the likes of Dickens and Trollope. So that was the suggestion here. So quite clearly Lothair fed the popular imagination about the Israeli as this inscrutable and also impenetrable character. But also it was the novel's eclectic generic mix of Bildungsromans, social satire, romance, fairy tale, fantasy, that triggered not only parodies, but also quite a mixed bag of critical reviews. I mean, for once it presented yet another puzzling instance of the Israelis' blurring of boundaries, something that for contemporary commentators seemed to obscure the message of the novel, that seemed like an inappropriate treatment of such grave and controversial socio-political debates and religious questions at the time. Um, there's also a point to be made that the Israelis' high-profile public persona, his celebrity persona, prevented critics from judging the novel on its own merits and prompted them to read or misread, whatever the case may be, uh, the novel in the light of the author's star appeal as well as in this larger context of Victorian uh, celebrity culture. So it has to be said that in a changing political culture and climate of the 1860s and 70s, which had seen the hardening of party front lines and in its wake the increasing mediatization and celebrity of politicians and party leaders as those emblematic party figureheads. It is not surprising that many critical assessments, either praising or decrying Lothair, were in one way or another coloured by quite perceptible political prejudice, uh, or at least alluded to the great political and personal rivalry of the day. I mean, satirical cartoon representations in Punch and Judy, for example, very much vehicles of political celebrity culture at the time, um, would, for example, demonstrate how this antagonism between Disraeli and his nemesis Gladstone was played out not only in the House of Commons, but how 
um, the subject matter and the style of their respective writings also got caught up in this narrative of their diametrically opposed character structures, interests and personalities. I think we're all very well familiar with this famous punch cartoon entitled Critics, uh, which imagined Disraeli and Gladstone as uh, severe and ultimately damning critics of each other's works, reading them as either flippant or prosy. Uh, but Judy offered quite a striking visual representation of their antithetical literary characters in terms of L'Allegro versus Il Penseroso, picturing Disraeli, and I would imagine that this also interestingly ties in with uh, Dominic's paper, picturing Disraeli as this gay and light-hearted and distinctly feminized muse of creative invention, embracing, and here I quote from the accompanying verse, quips and cranks and wanton wiles, knots and becks and wreathed smiles. These words are not original, you know, John Milton wrote them centuries ago. So this image of the insubstantial and the derivative jester is contrasted with that of the gloomy and the serious, the hard-headed scholar, the stern moralist who mistrusts the ministers of gladness, hail, moody, miserable sadness. Now, interestingly, this picture of Gladstone as the unsmiling, sombre and joyless, almost monkish ascetic was picked up, however not in Disraeli's favour, in this most savage review of Lothair in Blackwoods, which also acted as a reminder that Disraeli's literary exploits were frowned upon among his own party ranks and that they could be potentially politically damaging. Now, here, the reviewer, who turned out to be Edward Hamley, was later also a Conservative MP, uh, pointed out towards the end of this piece that, on the whole, we would rather that Mr. Gladstone had written it. That gentleman's sombre genius would bear with advantage a little light edging of ridicule, and the works in which he has hitherto sought to relieve his plethora of words have been very far from amusing anybody. Possibly, however, his friends are better satisfied that the authorship should be where it is. So if critical responses to the novel need to be read in the light of Victorian political celebrity culture, of course also based on the growing effective bonds between politicians and the general public, it is also well to remember that Israeli himself was aware of these changing socio-cultural parameters and their impact. I mean, Israeli's indebtedness to the romantic tradition um, can also be, I mean, both in, in terms of artistic self-conception and public image construction, can also be seen in the ways in which he responded to the allure of celebrity um, from the very beginning of his, of his literary career, of his public career. Um, there is, of course, on the one hand, and I think you know, this very much reflects this central tension between the visionary and the expedient that has already come up, and I have a feeling it's going to stay with us for the rest of the day. There was, of course, on the one hand, this wish you know, to be seen as this pure genius prophet of merited fame, while on the other hand he had this awareness that there was an active need for self-promotion, you know, for actively demonstrating his success and scrambling his way to what he called, of course, the top of the greasy pole. Now, his novels in their entanglement of 
realism and uh, fairy tale and, and fantasy very much catered to the voyeuristic desires of an increasingly celebrity obsessed middle class reading public who crave to set their eyes on the glittering social world of the rich the famous and the beautiful now at the same time however some of the novel's critical reviews lay bare this tension between on the one hand the pleasure that could be derived from such elaborate descriptions of social life and social elites and on the other hand a sense of irritation over what was felt to be the author's blatant exaggeration something that could result in a vaguely ludicrous and alienating effect. Now some reviewers attributed what they saw as the Israelis obsession with wealth, with money, with uh, social rank to his in-between status and to his otherness, which is not surprising given the virulent anti-Semitic attacks that he faced throughout his life. There is indeed at times in Disraeli's writing a perceptible ambivalence to be felt, where the tone curiously vacillates between admiration and satire and where it achieves an effect of stiltedness and improbability that is neither the sharp-eyed acuteness of the observer who is somehow placed at the margins of society, nor the ease and familiarity that comes with the insider's knowledge. And this ambivalence, to a certain extent, of course, stems from the tension between you know, the life of action, the life in the public limelight, and on the other hand, the life of scholarly contemplation, of creative imagination that he was also craving. But it also stems from this odd generic fusion that Disraeli was undertaking, following both satire and romance conventions. And recent readings of Lothair have actually stressed the importance of genre for an interpretation of the novel. But it was also seen by contemporaries as a sign of his social discomfort. Uh, this is, for example, how it was seen by Abraham Hayward in Macmillan's magazine, who, while he avoided mentioning Disraeli's Jewishness, certainly alluded to it by evoking another common racial stereotype of the day. Mr. Disraeli never feels at home amongst his great people. He takes no real pleasure in their society. He is like the Irishman in the sedan chair with the bottom out, who, if it was not for the dignity of the thing, would as leave walk. There are intervals when, to shake off the feeling of oppressiveness, he sneers at them, whilst a degree of his intimacy is betrayed by slight but sure indications like the perpetual recurrence of your grace. So this reference here to the Irishman, I mean, apart from evoking a whole host of parallels between Disraeli and uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, who would certainly adopt some of Disraeli's uh, strategies of self-fashioning, I mean, ten years down the line, points, of course, straight at another crucial layer of Disraeli's celebrity. For while it was indeed his fluent and regular switching between literature and politics that shaped his reputation as one of the most eminent Victorian public figures, we must not be oblivious to the mark of distinction borne by the eternal social, ethnic, intellectual outsider and the celebrifying impact of his exoticism. So the anomaly of his career, I mean his transgressions of Victorian norms and categories, his self-inventions as this chosen prophet, hero and visionary, certainly show how Disraeli tried to model himself 
on this tradition, as I said earlier, of the 18th century boundary-breaking outsider genius, this outcast Byronic hero who would react to sneers and antagonism with a good measure of self-protective and haughty arrogance. But it has also been mentioned already that in Disraeli's case, this is always tempered by the need to adapt to Victorian ideals of bourgeois respectability, which of course were also key to his political success. So to round off then, I mean, just as romance and realism, the spiritual and the secular uh, principle and expediency vibe with each other in Disraeli's life and career, puzzling contemporaries and very much contributing to his celebrity appeal, very similar competing generic and thematic forces are at work in Lothair and they all respond to different aspects of celebrity culture that are by far not restricted to the 19th century. I mean there is this privileged glimpse into the closed off and unattainable social circles of fabulously rich aristocrats. There is also the fairy tale character in this spiritual pilgrimage of the young and dashing and naive and pure-hearted hero, what John Skelton in Fraser's magazine referred to as the Arabian Nights translated into modern romance, but what Edward Hamley in Blackwoods at the same time denounced as the gin-inspired dreams of the assistant of some fashionable haberdasher. But of course there is also the deliberate and calculated nod to uh, the selling power of a more mundane aspect of celebrity culture, not just in the 19th century, and that is of course celebrity gossip uh, through the very thinly veiled but duly fictionalised portrayals of known public figures. So the text itself therefore, as well as the context of its production and its reception, um, not only cast an intriguing spotlight into the interplay of Victorian celebrity authorship, marketplace and uh, politics, but they also highlight the conflation and the holistic interaction of the Israelis' many parallel lives and the corresponding uh, prismatic shades of his celebrity, highlighting the allure of otherness, impenetrability, as well as double consciousness. Thank you.